Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Success Formula podcast. This week, I've been joined by Adam Kane, CRO of Playroll. In this week's episode, we'll discuss a number of different topics, including the impact the current economic crisis has had on how software companies scale. He also offers some incredible advice to young salespeople looking to grow up through their career. And also talk a little bit about his background and how that led him to where he is today and some of the values he holds core to exactly how he approaches his job on a day-to-day basis. I found the conversation really interesting. I certainly learned a lot from it um, and hopefully everyone listening will too. Hope you enjoy. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time Um, and I'm really excited to get your perspective on a load of things um, because you've been involved in so many different organizations in so many different stages. Obviously our paths crossed at Paddle um, for a brief time, but where I really wanted to start was first of all, a little bit of an intro to yourself, just for people that may not know you. Um, and then a little bit into like where it all started for you, a little bit of your background really, good class. Sure, uh, great to be here, Tim. Thank you very, very much. And great to have our paths crossed again. Um, mm. So yeah, as you, correctly identified my name is adam uh so to a good start there um i'm currently chief revenue officer at a company called playroll uh, which is an employer of record ultimately um what we do is we enable businesses who want to hire internationally who want to open up their um their talent pool um to do so because if you are a uk based business and you want to hire a superstar out in india or south africa or the us often you need a a vehicle by which to employ these people, typically an entity. Um, But creating an entity, maintaining an entity, and ensuring that you are compliant with every single labor law and regulation there is around uh, employment, payments, etc., is a real pain. So what Playroll has, we have 170 different countries that we can hire people through our own entities uh, for a small monthly fee. We take on the burden and the risk associated with hiring with paying, with finding all the benefits and, and, and compliance, and often, sadly, terminations as well, um, and effectively second that person back to the employer who has engaged us to legally hire this person. Brilliant. Uh, it's really similar, obviously, to, in, in a different space, I suppose, but really similar to Paddle in terms of that merchant record model, but just in a different world of payments versus employment, but... 100%. And I think that's something that's always excited me is, is the of record model, meaning, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer, and I'm sure we'll come on to this, that, you know, businesses in order to be successful have to have real focus on their core competence. Um, we saw this with Paddle when, you know, we were taking the burden of, of billing and payment and compliance away from businesses uh, trading internationally. Um, and ultimately, we're doing the same with employment now, because a business really has two core competence. One is building a great kick-ass product. And the other is developing a great go-to-market. Um, hiring people, paying people, being compliant with benefits and, and, and laws around firing and termination is never a business's core competence. So we take that burden away from people so they can focus on their core competence there. It's always like you hear all the time, particularly in the world of technology and software, that really it's the people that drive a business. So you just want to have, and I suppose that's a massive plus off the back of like COVID, I suppose, that it's opened people's eyes to we don't have to just hire people in London because we're based in London. We can hire, go and find that talent anywhere in the world and yes, and absolutely. build the best company we possibly can. Absolutely. Well, COVID, COVID certainly accelerated the trend that was already growing around well, globalization, I guess, that you can access different markets, you can access different talent pools 
Um, it's long been a well-known fact that East Europe, for example, has got a wealth of talents when it comes to software development. Um, but rather than, again, going and having to set up your own entity there, you can access that talent. But it, it, that's not the only use case, Tim. I think there's, there's other use cases that I've learned about um, since I've been here, such as what happens when a business acquires another business and they inherit all of these employees where they don't have an entity anymore to support them there. Um, so a, a, an M&A carve-out is a very good use case for us where we can step in and fulfill that acquisition. What happens if you've got a superstar employee who wants to move away from the country, but you want to retain them as an employee? Um, these are all very interesting use cases that we are able to support as well. Super interesting. So to bring it all back for a second, Adam, one thing I really want to understand, because obviously the whole kind of idea of this podcast is really not understand not only understand how software companies are made but also how the people that make them get to where they are um and obviously i know from talking to you before that you started out in the, the world of legal right you started out as a training solicitor and tell me how does someone who's training or qualified to be a solicitor end up where you are today what what, what happened it's a very good question um perhaps to, to set the scene I, I mean, I kind of fell into being a lawyer as well. My third year of university, I had that panic that I'm sure many people are familiar with, which is, oh my God, what the hell am I going to do with my life? I don't have a job set up. Um, this was back in the early 2000s or mid 2000s. And, you know, again, sales wasn't really seen, software sales particularly, as a career that was open to many. Um, sales people were still very much perceived as those people who call you at 7.30 in the evening whilst you're having your dinner trying to sell you insurance or, or knocking on your door trying to sell knives. Um, so it wasn't even a thought of mine at the time. And I, I, I literally just applied to every reputable industry that there was and, and, and basically left my fate in the lap of the gods and said, whatever I'm offered first, I'm going to take, be that law, accounting, consulting, banking, uh, definitely not medicine, but um, aside from that, um, and lo and behold, I got offered a job from a law firm, which, again, I, I guess I'm confident enough to say I'd never heard of them, but apparently they were really, really big. Um, and I was told that I'd be foolish to turn this down. Um, it also meant that I could study for another two years and they'd pay for my study as I, as I converted my degree into a legal qualification, um, which was also great. Um, but the, the truth is, Tim, I, I never really enjoyed my life as a lawyer. Um, I was working in one of these big city law firms, which is, you know, fantastic firm and if, if you're that way inclined um it's great um i was not that engaged or turned on by the work um and i also found again it was it was quite a big corporate firm one of the largest in the world and, and there was a lot of politics at play and for me that gave me the first indication that large organizations are not my cup of tea um perhaps i wasn't aware of it at the time because i hadn't seen what the other side of the fence looked like but i, I really despised that in fact i was working through the credit crunch um as a lawyer and I'd seen these people who had given their lives to the firm for the last 10, 15 years in a bid to become a partner, which was kind of the route you are uh, encouraged to go down. And then lo and behold, you know, the credit crunch hit. These were the most expensive resources and they're walking out the building with a, with a cardboard box the next day. Um, and they were phenomenal lawyers, you know, really, really good. But I guess they didn't play the game well enough. Uh, and for me, that, that was not what I wanted to be in. Um, I was actually going to start again because I hadn't learned my lesson once I was going to start again at one of the big accounting firms um, <laughs> you know and uh, you know I had a job lined up I decided to take a bit of a break in between starting there um, and leaving my job as a lawyer and I realized that I still didn't know what I wanted to do um, but I recognized that despite not knowing what I wanted to do there was a skill 
that I would need regardless of where I ended up in my career. And that skill was sales, be that as a lawyer, as an accountant, as a consultant, um, as an entrepreneur, sales is, is a transferable and a skill that is essential in every single business that you're running. Um, you need to generate revenue. Um, so I actually took a job uh, in a graduate role. Um, I, I really was intending to take it for six months at a company called Meltwater. Uh, Meltwater, for those who are unfamiliar with it, is a, or was at the time, a media monitoring company. Um, I know they'll hate me for saying this, and we hated saying this at the time, but think of Google Alerts um, that you pay for. Um, and it was also one of the first SaaS businesses in the UK. So this was back in 2008, 2009. Um, in fact, most of my job when I was speaking to clients was explaining what SaaS was rather than what the product actually did. Um, and I was very lucky. Meltwater was a great experience for me. Um, for those of people thinking about starting a career in sales, I cannot think of a better organization where you get a wonderful experience. Why? Because we didn't have SDRs. We didn't have pre-sales engineers. Um, you were responsible. We didn't have revenue operations. We were responsible for prospecting, outreaching, demoing, negotiating, and even doing some account management for your account. So I got end-to-end -end experience across the entire sales process there. And it really was a meritocracy. It, there was no politics. As we all know in sales, there's, there's nowhere to hide. You, you live and die by your numbers. Um, and I really clocked onto the fact that the more I put in, the more I got out. I was definitely not the best or most polished salesperson there. Um, but I'd inherited an insanely crazy work rate from my time in one of these magic circle law firms. Um, and I'd realized that my chances of success were maximized that if I was spending the time that were people were available on the phone, i.e. nine to five on the phone, rather than doing any of the admin or prospecting tasks outside of that. So I would spend my evenings when my colleagues were putting down their laptops at five o'clock to go to the pub. I would spend my time prospecting, getting my call list ready for the next day so that when nine o'clock hit, I would be spending every single minute on the phone possible, um, probably at a lower conversion rate than everyone else, but I just did that much more. Um, so that's that's how I ended up in sales. I, I loved it. I love the meritocracy. I love the autonomy. I love the the kind of binary nature of, you know, you, you eat what you kill. Um, I ended up calling the accounting firm and saying, I'm sorry, I'm pulling out, pulling out of the opportunity. I'm pursuing a career in sales. It's occurs to me that you obviously had that real flair for sales really early on because you obviously went out. It's basically how you got your job in a solicitor firm. Basically, you went, reached out to everybody, did essentially did your prospecting, did your outreach and saw what opportunities came back to you, I, I kind of, I suppose. So to, to a certain extent, I think that was probably the reverse way of how I'd like to run sales now, where you're very clear <laughs> on your ideal customer, you know the pains and how you can solve those pains. I would say this was more of a spray and pray approach and hoping something stuck to the wall. But um, yeah, that definitely overlaps in terms of that, uh, that effort there. So obviously from there, you've gone on to have a whole array of different fairly senior roles in a number of different businesses at different stages, what have you. Um, I think one thing that I'm always really interested to understand is having not had a senior role anywhere near like that in my career. And I know a lot of people, I've talked to a lot of people that feel the same is obviously it comes with that a lot of pressure. You've got a lot on your shoulders, but there must be some really good bits, but also some really bad bits about uh, having a role with that level of seniority. I wondered if you could share a little bit of your thoughts around that in terms of what you love about having a senior role, but also what what you don't necessarily love so much. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would absolutely be the first to confess when I first moved into management, um, I missed being at the coalface. 
I really missed being in control of my destiny. Um, and I missed being directly client facing because that's what I really loved about the job in the first place is helping clients solve problems. Um, but actually what I soon realized that if I was good at my job, I would be able to do what I was doing, but on a much, much larger scale. Um, and ultimately kind of as you've identified, it all comes back to people. For me, the biggest pleasure I get today as a revenue leader is not what I got when I was an AE, which was closing a deal or hitting my target. My biggest pleasure I get today is seeing the people that I have crossed paths with, impacted their lives in some way, achieve success. That might be an SDR in my team being moved up to an AE. That could be an AE hitting 200% of their target and taking home commission beyond their dreams. Or it could be somebody that I managed 10 years ago that's just announced they've become VP of sales somewhere else. And whilst I'm sure there were many other people had much more of an impact, I know that I have a little fingerprint on that success there. Um, so for me, it's, it's, it's about being able to celebrate whilst not being in the limelight. And that, that's something that, again, being fully candid, I, I kind of had to get used to at the beginning of my management journey. But now I get a lot of pride whenever I see the achievement and the impact that I have had on people. Um, but you're right. It's it's the the more senior I've got, the more pressure there is. Um, not just because ultimately the more responsibility you have for delivering something. I'm not just one of a few people anymore. But it's back to that people point again. If I fail, then everyone who's working with me fails as well. Um, and I think that's something that I take very very seriously. You know, yes, a business. We are all here to be successful. We're all here to have fun. But actually, I see myself as somebody who's really passionate about launching people's careers. And if I'm unable to do that for people, um, then I have failed. And I, that, that for me is always the hardest responsibility to carry because I see people put their trust in me and the business that they have joined. Um, and I want to make sure that I can deliver for them. In terms of kind of it's on the similar sort of path, but obviously along that journey through those senior roles, you've been involved in some incredibly high growth. Business. Obviously, play role where you are now, but previously paddle before that. And I know others as well. What's it been like to be involved in? I mean, I remember when I joined Paddle and being told, well, we've basically doubled in size over the last 18 months and then went on to have an acquisition and doubled again. And what's it like to be involved in companies that are just growing at that sheer rate of knots? And that must bring so many challenges with it, but it must be quite fun, I suppose. Huge, huge challenges. And it's always at this question that I, I, I bring reference to my hairline. Um, which you know, <laughs> once was far far less receding than it is right now. There is a lot of stress. There's a lot of pressure in startup life. Um, there's a lot of pressure in scale-up life. Um, and it's an always-on mentality. Um, whatever people say, um, I have lost sleep over work just because your brain is always running at a 1,000 miles an hour. Um, but it's only really I found, particularly with Paddle, when I took a step off the train that I realized just how much we'd achieved. Um, when I was working there and I was there for four years, I joined at after series A at around about 4 million ARR. I left after series D at 80 million ARR um, four years later. Um, and I obviously knew that as I was there, but it didn't sound quite an achievement as it did when I stopped. And I looked back and I said, wow, what was, like it, what was it like day one? What was it like four years later? Um, and I think part of that actually is the reason for success, which is you're, you know, you're working really hard to, to climb a peak. You have a goal, you get to the peak and then you look up and you see the next peak ahead of you. Um, and I'm sure you'll remember this from Paddle, the founders, you know, great guys, Christian and Harrison, but we were always critical of them for never celebrating victories. And 
that, in other words, could be called ambition, uh, relentless ambition, right? And it was always the next challenge, the next challenge, the next. and maybe we should have taken a little bit longer to just breathe and celebrate our victories. And perhaps some of us wouldn't have been so stretched and burnt out. But it was when I looked back and when I told the story and when I saw from the outside how Paddle became so respected, particularly in the UK SaaS world, that I realized, wow, we'd, we'd achieved something really, really special. Because when I was there, it never felt special. It always felt like a real hard job, a really stressful job, a feeling that things could fall apart at any minute. Um, <laughs> and it was, yeah, like I said, it had to take a bit of reflection to really appreciate the success in the journey. And that's really interesting. Do you think, had you taken that step back for slightly longer when you'd reached those peaks, the same success would have been found? Or do you think that, as you say, that whole mentality that led to the fact you didn't take that step, the foot off the gas, was the very reason you achieved that success? Yeah, I, I think about that a lot. And I, I can't say I know the answer because we didn't. Um, I do think the ambition, the relentless ambition, the effort, the work rate was the driver of success. And, and, and I think when I think back about what, what is the success that I'm actually proud of, you know, many businesses have scaled quickly. Many businesses have become unicorns. Many businesses have acquired other businesses and gone through all these rounds of funding. That isn't actually what makes me most proud. Um, what makes me most proud of achieving those revenue and growth milestones with a very lean team. I think, you know, prior to the acquisition of ProfitWell, which was um, early 2022, we were about 150 people and we were already at around about 65, 70 million ARR. Um, and again, you look at other large companies with, with huge balance sheets, they've typically got thousands of employees. Um, and this was before the world of venture capital came crumbling down and people realized that you have to do less with more. And, you know, people just kind of thought about building businesses as a multiple of the employees that they had. Um, but this is now common practice, right? Which is how do you get to 100 million ARR to a billion dollar valuation with as little resource or as, as less as possible? So that's actually something that I found we were quite ahead of the curve at Paddle in terms of how we thought about growth. I know Christian always said, we don't celebrate hires. We shouldn't celebrate hires because a hire means we haven't been able to achieve that goal with the current resources available to us. And we've had to go out and spend to it, um, which was a brand new way of thinking for me as well. That's really, that is really interesting to have that mentality. No, I, that's, I never thought about it that way. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Um, and so obviously you mentioned there around the, the acquisition as well. That must have been, is that the first acquisition you were involved with from a leadership perspective? From the first acquisition where we were doing the acquiring, I have been acquired before, acquired. but yes, exactly. What was that experience like? That must have been crazy. Um, yeah, it, it, it was It was interesting to say the least. <laughs> um, I mean, look, ProfitWell is a great company. They have a great brand. They have great people. They have a great product. Um, and truly, there were incredible synergies there around why the two businesses would work together. Um, I think for me, as a revenue leader of Paddle at the time, I really wanted to understand. And I think it was, for me, an obsession with the valuation. And again, it's uh, it's not a secret. It's publicly available information. But we bought ProfitWell for $200 million dollars. Um, and I wanted to understand what the return on investment was. I guess that's the way I sell as well, which is always trying to justify the ROI. Um, and we had to do a lot of exercises 
as justification to the board, as justification for the future fundraise on why a $200 million price tag um, was justified at the time. Part of that was, okay, we're going to inherit, inherit their balance sheet, which, you know, represented some of that, but nowhere near $200 million. And then the other part had to be made up in terms of how this would uplift the, 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 the value of Paddle, either through cross-sell synergies or through enhancement of our offering and therefore opening up our ability to win there. That for me was a really interesting task. Um, and it's something that, again, it took me some time to get my head around and, and to buy into. Um, and then the other part, as everyone knows who's been through an acquisition, is that the, the challenges of integrating two cultures, two groups of people, is all too often underestimated in terms of how challenging it is. And it's, it, it, it is, and I still, from what I understand, remains a challenge. Um, it's, it's two ways of working, especially when one is VC backed, one is, is, is bootstrapped um, and has grown organically. Um, where you've got two very, very strong-minded and kind of visionary leaders uh, in Christian Owens and Patrick Campbell. Um, and so that in itself, in terms of how do the teams work together? How do we think about sales teams selling different products work together? What does the now, the near, and the future term look like around this? Um, and how do we get everyone rallying around this common goal? Um, and that that itself was just such a big challenge for us to think about. Um, and, it, it you know, the biggest cost was the distraction it took from everyday running of the business because the entire executive team plus a whole bunch of other people were obsessing over these challenges rightly so at the expense of the day-to-day -day running of the business so um it was a very taxing and challenging process um but i actually still think in retrospect it was a, a very very good acquisition by paddle as someone who was kind of loosely involved in terms of working there at the time it was was really exciting but also really interesting to watch as things kind of came together and I mean did you in a strange way did you quite enjoy that process of like trying to piece things together and work it out and work out that direction no <laughs> I didn't um, and I, I'll tell you why is because I was trying not to get sucked into the hype I saw the upside but I felt that my job was to try and identify the risks and mitigate against them so when you're always looking for potential risks and downsides, it's quite a demoralizing feeling. You know, I wanted to kind of say, yeah, it's going to be amazing and, and, and you know, buy into the messaging. Um, whilst I believed that, I wanted to make sure that we had plotted a path to get there. To get there um, yeah. And so my day-to-day -day became about looking at risks, looking at problems, looking where the plan might fail. And like I said, that's quite quite a demoralizing feeling after a while. <laughs> is that is that how is that a approach you take a lot in general day to day in trying to? I, I think that's quite a sales trait, I suppose, is to be naturally pessimistic. But one hundred percent, it, it leads to all those other things you've discussed around never quite celebrating success and all that sort of stuff because you're always looking for the next problem or the next challenge or the next thing to overcome. One hundred percent, and this is something that I've I've brought into Playroll. I know my team are a little bit shocked by it. It's it's you know that well known that well known saying of happy is, you know, as as a sales rep, you hear some good news, you hear some good some good sounds on the other end of the phone or in the meeting, and you're like, yeah, there's a deal right there. Um, and I always say when I'm coaching reps, when I'm doing deal reviews, of course they love the product, of course they love you, they're great. Now let's think about why this deal won't happen. Now let's think about every single possible risk that can happen associated with this deal. Um, maybe we're being overly cynical and pessimistic, but I'd rather be pessimistic and wrong than optimistic <laughs> and wrong. 
Yeah. Um, even if, you know, 98% of the efforts we've taken to try and mitigate risks were unfounded, I'd still rather do that and know that we are in absolute control of this deal and managing risks rather than, you know, stick, stick my head in the sand and, and hope for the best. Definitely. I, it's, it's, you see it so often, don't you? It's like one of the perpetual challenges, I think, of, of particular forecasting in sales is getting overexcited about things. There must have been some pinch self moments though, along the way, it's particularly in that paddle journey when you were like I think back to the summit that we had after Profitwell joined and there must have been a moment for yourself having been there for what for over four years where you kind of looked around the room and went this is quite a lot of people now like this is this is yeah. this is big yeah it did it did that that was a shock that summit to me just how big it was just you know it was on a huge campus as you'll remember um lots of rooms taken out lots of really and it was it was a high budget event it wasn't you know one of these kind of cheap back of a of a hotel type thing um it was really real quality production but no i, I wasn't i still wasn't celebrating i was thinking really? Really? gosh how are we going to integrate how are we going to set revenue goals? How are the products going to work together? How are the teams and the managers going to work together? Who's going to take responsibilities? What does this mean? You know, they have a, uh, we have a, a wonderful regional vice president in North America and they had a GM of sales in, in the US. How's that going to work? So I was probably quite conditioned to start thinking about the next peak we had to challenge even then. Um, you know, uh, even on the, the final party when you had a few too many mojitos, you're thinking about the next day um, and what, what, you had to, what you had to do to, to climb to that next level that's mad that's mad um wanted to change direction a little bit now and kind of get a feel for i know that you um take a lot of interest and obviously you have high involvement in your day-to-day kind of job around maybe as you were saying not so much maybe a player role right now but around the whole economic position at the moment the way tech valuations are going and and the way that funding is and i was really interested to understand like how much of a difference do you think that's made to the way tech companies go about building themselves and whether you think that's going to be an onward trend or how you see that kind of playing out over the coming years, because it's obviously been a huge sea change in the it last has. few years. It has. And I think clearly it's been a huge shock and it's, it's obviously been devastating for so many businesses and so many people's livelihoods, um, which, you know, it, it is, yeah, devastating is absolutely the right word. Um, I think there's a couple of things that I think about in terms of, of the future of scaling businesses. First and foremost, particularly in SaaS, consumption of SaaS is still a growing trend. Um, and whilst obviously things like businesses valuations is related to interest rates, um, these are cycles that we go through and I expect valuations to improve and, and, and funding uh, the funding scene to come back. Um, I won't try and guess when that might be. I think people, when this started, thought it'd be months. I think, you know, it, I, I was thinking years, hopefully they're right and I'm wrong, but um, it, it seems like it's still going to continue for, for the at least near term future. I do think a lot about this, though, back to my first sales job um, in a VC-backed environment. And I, I remember having a conversation with my father, who's an accountant, and, and trying to explain to him the model that we were a loss-making business. And it was really exciting because we were growing so fast, but we were continuing to make lots of losses. And he, bless him, of the previous generation, couldn't get his head around how a business could be loss-making and sustainable. Um, and I think I think about that conversation a lot over what we've seen over the past year or so, which is ultimately this, for lack of a better phrase, growing up of the industry. 
that businesses have had to think about profit and loss and not just top line revenue growth year on year as a strategy. And I'm not saying that, you know, SaaS businesses or, or, or scale up businesses need to be profitable, but they need to always be able to have a path to profitability. Um, one thing that I know we're doing here at Playroll, for example, is we're, we're really hyper-focused on some metrics that up until two, three years ago were just alien to us. So for example, burn multiple. Burn multiple, which is ultimately in simple terms, how much revenue you're making uh, as a multiple or how much loss you're making as a multiple of the revenue you're making. So if you're making $100 and you're spending $200, you've got a burn multiple of two. Um, and ultimately that's a metric that we are, really really focused on here because if that metric grows to three or four or ten or a hundred suddenly we're at, we're out of control and our revenue might be growing really fast but our costs are growing even faster and so for me this is all about being in control of your business in sales we talk about being in control of your deals being in control of your quota being in control of your quarter but as a business leader now you have got to be in control of your costs in control of your growth as well and I think that has just really emphasized and driven forward that approach, which meant most, if not all other industries operate by, um, which is you have this concept of revenue, profit and loss. Um, and ultimately, we've now, as the SaaS industry, are very much stepping into that mold as well. Really interesting. I've, that burn multiple metric is something I've seen mentioned a few times, but it's really interesting that that's such a focus for yourselves. And does that mean it changes your pro, your thoughts around hiring, around kind of the, I suppose, the marketing approach you take? Every, every, every element of the business changes when you're thinking that way, I suppose. Absolutely. It means that your planning is very much contingent on results. And I, and I know kind of the VC world, especially over the last year, has, has seen that in a very extreme way. You miss a sales quarter, you fire 30% of your team. Um, for us, I think it's about getting ahead of that. I don't want to find myself in that situation. So actually, it's a bit of the inverse, which is we will go out and spend on this hire, on this campaign, on this expansion plan upon achievement of this revenue goal. So really, our revenue goals are not there to satisfy our valuation or our investors. They're there to help us unlock the next stage of growth because we will only justify the spend if we have the money uh, booked already. That's really interesting. That's, so it's a very ROI-driven approach to, to growing a business, essentially. It's... Well, it's, it's sustainability. It's, it's about saying that ultimately we want to keep this train on the tracks. Um, and thankfully, we, we, we are in a position where we can continue operating in this loss-making model. But ultimately, we want to stay very, very close, like parallel lines between yeah. that revenue and that loss side of things to make sure that they are, they are very much right. And if we suddenly overachieve on revenue, then we can, we can spend a little bit more. We can go out and hire faster. We can go out and do some more exciting campaigns. Which was, I suppose, way back, the whole premise of what was supposed to happen with SaaS businesses is it allowed you to reinvest back into the business to continue to grow, not go and, go and kind of raise a huge amount of cash, spend it all, and then see where we land at the end of it. Um, I suppose that's one particular trend that has definitely been something that a lot of us have seen, as particularly some of the redundancies in the sector and stuff like that. Obviously, with Playroll, that feeds into a whole other trend, which is around going and hiring talent from all over the world, as we spoke about right at the start. Are there any other trends that you're seeing across the market, maybe in terms of the way people actually consume technology and the way that people buy software that you're, you're seeing at the moment that you think is a trend that you're particularly focused on as a, as a CRO? Yeah, I think 
I think ultimately what has certainly been heightened when it comes to, to the procurement of software is is the focus on ROI. Um, and you'll remember from being in my team, Tim, that ROI was always the way I wanted to sell, value selling. Um, I never understood why people bought something because they liked the look of it. Um, that was not something I ever really bought into, and it's not something I ever wanted my team to sell. Um, but this ultimately comes back to the concept of, of scaling an organization, um, which is around predictability. You need to get predictable. Um, and if you can predictably build a pipeline, predictably close deals, predictably show the value of your solution in terms of dollars and cents or pounds and pence, um, then you are in control of those numbers. Um, so I think that heightened focus on predictability when it comes to either procuring software and the ROI or how you're building an organization is going to be very, very important and continues to, to, to come to the forefront as well. Brilliant. That's that's really good. Thank you, Adam. Um, the way I want to end, and this is how I'm ending all the, the podcast episodes, is a little bit of, I suppose, not maybe not if you could go back in time and speak to your younger self, but you obviously work with also a load of SDRs um, and a load of younger reps as well. If you could give one or two pieces of advice to someone starting out in their journey in sales um, that you think are kind of the, the bits of advice you hold core to yourself in terms of how you've been successful, what would they be? I think the first point is it's a hard job. If you don't want to be here, it's going to make it even harder. Um, you've got to enjoy the graft. You've got to be comfortable with rejection. You've got to be comfortable with, with failure um, because sales is a numbers-based job, as we've said, and you get more failure than you do success. That's just the nature of the role. Nobody that I know really is operating above 50% win rate when it comes to deals. Uh, um, so I think as a salesperson, you've got to you've got to be realistic. And you know it's hard because a lot of employer branding talks about rocket ships and hockey sticks, and you know we're on this growth curve, and people often kind of I wouldn't say misled, but misunderstand that actually being part of that journey is not just sitting in your seat and waiting for your share options to vest. It is it is grafting, it is hard work there. Um, and that's something that I think a lot of people do not understand when they enter uh, in an entry-level uh, sales role as an SDR in a scale-up there. And then the other part that I think, again, just perhaps from my personality and served me really, really well and probably what accelerated my position into leadership was don't operate in a silo. And I certainly encourage this from my teams which is you should act like a business owner. Even if you don't own any of the business, if you've got any ideas that you think can improve the way the business operates, then speak up. You know, it can be a critique of a process. It can be an, an idea of how we optimize something. It could be a product enhancement. But if you're an SDR and you're tasked with creating X number of meetings uh, a month or a quarter, if you can see beyond that, what value you can add, why you're doing what you're doing, what your business is trying to achieve, rather than my job is starting and ending at the number of meetings I generate, then I'm pretty confident you will rise very, very quickly. Um, so I'd always encourage people to be curious beyond their swim lanes, uh, to really try and understand why businesses are doing what they're doing, why they're driving what they're driving, because this will set you up for success to say to be seen as somebody who can take on more responsibility, who can see that bigger picture, uh, and ultimately show uh, and enable other people to to follow their footsteps. Brilliant, Adam. This has been absolutely superb. I really appreciate your time because I know you're incredibly busy. So, thank you so much. Um, 
I've certainly learned a load and I'm sure people listening will have done as well. Um, and I find the way you approach business so interesting. So I really appreciate your time, Adam. Thank you so much. And um, thanks, Tim. Yeah, thanks, all thanks for coming on. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Thanks again, Adam. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast this week and for sharing so many insights into so many different subjects. I found how the impact that the acquisition had in your day-to-day job when you were at Paddle and how that you just couldn't relax um, even when everyone else was so excited around you. I found the whole conversation around the impact the relentless drive of Christian Harrison have had on Paddle to this day and moving forward. Um, and also your thoughts on how the current economic climate is going to really impact how software companies grow moving forward. I found the whole conversation really interesting. So thank you so much for sharing. And I hope everyone listening enjoyed it too. I look forward to seeing you back on the very next episode of The Success Formula.